0: Comfort, take your claim to a life without shame There are people who understand Here they're reaching out their hands And there is joy that will bloom
1: on the other side Hi, my friends. It's Miranda, and this is one of the most eye-opening and compelling episodes I've ever released. I'm still stunned that I was largely unaware of the, quote, troubled teen industry, what it is, and how urgently we need to stand up against the practices that you will hear about today. My co-host, Catherine, Robb, and I speak with two guests who each have a uniquely riveting story to tell. So I've divided our discussion into two episodes, and I plan to drop the second one next Friday. This is not an easy listen, you should know that, but we can't look away when kids are in trouble, and we the public can help. So I'm going to give you a few specific calls to action toward the end and in the show notes as well. You can also follow Truth and Consequences on social media to get supplementary articles and videos that I will be sharing about this topic. Okay, let's do this. Hello, and welcome to Truth and Consequences, a podcast about trauma and its aftermath, where we talk about the difficult and often surprising challenges that affect us in the wake of trauma and other life-altering events. I'm your host, Miranda Pacquiana. I am a writer and personal coach with a master's in social work and the creator of the website and online platform, The Second Wound. I am joined by my sometime co-host and friend, Katherine Robb. Catherine is an attorney, writer, survivor, and the executive director of Child U.S. Advocacy, which fights for legislation to protect children and prevent child abuse and neglect. Today, we are talking about the so-called troubled teen industry, a system of underregulated residential youth treatment facilities where kids who are acting out and/or struggling emotionally get sent for treatment, generally by well-meaning, concerned parents. In fact, many of these facilities operate more like prisons, where children as young as nine are routinely abused in an extreme system of behavior modification, prevented from telling their parents what's going on, and kept for unnecessarily long stretches while reaping enormous revenue for the facilities. Thousands of minors are in these places today, in America and abroad, where they are isolated, traumatized, and subject to all manners of abuse. Paris Hilton recently came forward about the traumatic experiences she endured at Provo Canyon School and several wilderness programs, and her voice helped spark an interest in the pushback against the troubled teen industry from concerned politicians and the public. We are very fortunate to have two outspoken survivor advocates with us today to educate us on an issue that every person with a conscience needs to care about. I do need to warn you that we discuss emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. So while we do our best to handle these issues with care, please look after yourself as well. One last thing before we get started, if you find the podcast valuable and you're in a position to show your support, I would be very grateful if you'd make a small donation to help with my operating costs. Just press that donate button on the Truth and Consequences website or use my Venmo or PayPal handle on the coaching page at secondwound.com. Thank you so much in advance for your support and generosity. It really helps. Chelsea Maldonado is an investigative researcher for Trapped in Treatment, a docu-style podcast focused on exposing the troubled teen industry, produced by Paris Hilton, London Audio, iHeart Media, and Warner Brothers. As a survivor of the troubled teen industry, Chelsea uses her lived experience to inform her work with a variety of youth rights-focused organizations and initiatives. Amanda Simmons is a California attorney, advocate, and survivor of institutional sexual assault in the troubled teen industry. She founded Ambika Law PC, a firm dedicated to trauma-informed lawyering and providing a safe space for survivors of institutional child abuse to explore their legal options. We're truly honored to have Chelsea and Amanda on the show today. Thank you. We're happy to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. So let's just jump in, and you can tell us all about what the troubled teen industry is and your own experiences with it and how you got involved. This is a topic that I was really shocked to find out about when I listened to the podcast Trapped in Treatment, especially because I am in the world of knowing about trauma and children and their needs. I was pretty stunned that I had not heard much about it. And I feel like it's so important to get this word out. So I'm so excited that you two are here today. So please take it away and help fill in our audience about this subject that we all really need to know more about.
2: Absolutely. The Troubled Teen Industry is a network of facilities that offer typically behavior modification to youth. And these can be in a variety of settings. So you could have residential treatment facilities. You could have wilderness programs. You can have therapeutic boarding schools. Sometimes kids are kept on ranches. There's a really wide variety of settings. And a lot of these accept children through parental placement. And in fact, the industry refers to itself as the parent choice behavioral health care system, which I think is an important distinguishing Mm -hmm. factor. That's kind of my overview of the troubled teen industry. Amanda, I know you have insights as well.
3: One of the real problems with this industry is defining exactly what it is because does a short-term psychiatric facility qualify does a foster care facility qualify does juvenile justice facilities qualify and i think one of the things that they're increasingly trying to do is identify the nomenclature more accurately like i know families first has the qualified residential treatment program designation and it's not only hard to identify but the actors are intentionally slippery about it whatever Technical term comes under focus. They can shift it a little bit, and then they're in a different category. So, the sort of elusive nature of defining it is is intentional. It's not mm-hmm. accidental. Yeah.
1: So, what are we focusing on the the segment of the industry that is rampant with abuse and under regulation? What does that look like? So
2: that is really the majority of the industry. Um, wow. So you do have you know kind of a state by state patchwork of laws that require licensing and oversight. Uh, But those are very minimal. These facilities, I think, you know, they purposefully designated themselves in an area that doesn't have a lot of regulation. So a lot of them don't classify as a traditional school. They don't classify as a traditional hospital. They don't classify as a detention center. So they're in this kind of legally nebulous area. And so, yeah. So state by state, you know, a lot of these get kind of shoved under the group home category. And it's not even really known that they're doing anything therapeutic. Some states require no licensure at all. Those that do have licensing will generally have some exemptions for religious facilities.
1: So that's how they they end up having so much ability to run the way that they want to that ends up being more about behavior modification than it is about actual treatment, and it moves pretty quickly over into abuses.
2: Mm -hmm. I think it deviates from, you know, what we would expect from standard treatment. So a lot of these facilities are holding kids for a very long time. You can have kids that are held for years at a time in residential facilities. And there's really no evidence that indicates that a child needs that level of inpatient lockdown care.
1: And there's no oversight, right? And it's a conflict of interest because if they keep them in, they make more money.
2: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. Maybe, Chelsea, you can walk us through how this process begins with a parent and a teen and what it usually looks like. Mm -hmm.
2: So when you have a child that's being placed by their parent, the parent is typically the person who is initiating the process. Um, And so there's generally two paths that they may go down. They can do their own research, which means hopping on Google and typing in, you know, how do I help my teen stop throwing tantrums? How do I get my child to like me? Any sort of combination of keywords. And these will pull up both the programs themselves and various clearinghouses that help steer parents towards a residential facility. The other pathway that a parent might choose is what's called an educational consultant. And these are private individuals who specialize in placing children into residential facilities. It's not a therapist. It's not a social worker. It's kind of in its own category. And that's really all they do is refer parents.
1: And what is a parent going to see? Tell me about the marketing pitch and what it looks like. And then we can find out what's really going on behind the scenes.
2: Absolutely. Parents will see generally beautiful facilities. They market equine therapy, they market access to nature, experiential learning, a whole variety of terms, right? You'll notice therapeutic, but not therapy, Ah. which is kind of an important distinguishing factor there. Uh, You'll also notice references to behavior changes and kind of nebulous diagnoses. You won't necessarily see something like you would see at a traditional hospital inpatient. It's Is your child acting out? Is your child unhappy? Could your child be struggling in school? Send them here for our therapeutic process in this beautiful location with all of these animals and all of these opportunities and this chance to be immersed in a therapeutic environment. And we will return your child to you loving and grateful and appreciative.
3: I actually wanted to add to that, that one of the things that I've, I think I've seen switch in the marketing recently, and it really bothers me. I've been practicing yoga and meditation for like 15 years now, and these places are starting to sound like wellness retreat, you know, go to Tulum for eight days and meditate. And, it, and like they show kids meditating on hilltops and like sound baths and, you know, Reiki healing. And I'm just looking at it and I'm like, okay, so the idea that we're going to scream and yell at your kids went out of fashion back in like the nineties. And then it was, some kids are pretty bad and they need these programs. Don't be scared to send your kid if they are one of the bad ones, but some kids do. And now it feels like it's switching to like an all-inclusive wellness retreat (laughs) where, you know, you get Reiki and attack therapy, all at once. So well-intentioned <laughs> parents
1: could think that they're actually having their child picked up and brought to someplace that's going to be enjoyable and help them. Back to your thought earlier, Catherine, about what parents are really seeing and developmental stages of teenagerhood that may lead them to be Googling their concerns online.
4: Well, just what Amanda and Chelsea share in terms of what parents are seeking help for sounds like The experience I had with all five of my children to different degrees and also looking back what I did to my parents. It does feel that clearly this is a for profit business that utilizes and takes advantage of the angst that most parents feel in raising teenagers and look at most parents know parenting is not for the weak at heart. It's super hard. And I think this bullshit message that's sent to parents that children should be around your schedule and your ease. Um, And that everything should be easy flies in the face of reality. And then for an institution to utilize this struggle that all parents have, whether it's with newborns or toddlers or teenagers, that this is the way we can help you. Or I heard you say several times, Chelsea, about parents searching online. How do I help my teen? That's also a lot of BS because it's the parents that are looking for the help, right? Good point. And at Child U.S. Advocacy, we are an organization that fights for the civil rights of children. And to have these industries take advantage of the angst that parents are feeling and perhaps to some degree the ignorance that parents have around this, and that trust me, I had my own ignorance. My oldest is was a bit of a guinea pig in terms of what I had to learn. But then to sort of have your kids traumatized and have them sent off to a wellness place <laughs> where they're gonna need more uh meditation and yoga to heal from the fact that they were kidnapped and betrayed by their family and parent. This is A cluster of insanity, in my opinion. And the sad reality is it's the children that suffer, likely for the rest of their lives.
3: I think also what you're talking about, Catherine, is the disgusting pathologization of teenagerhood. Exactly. That because you talk back to your mom, that that's a disease. (laughs) It's not exactly that, that's bipolar. Or a crime. Or a crime. And
4: yeah. you should be and you should therefore be punished and kidnapped in the middle of the night and uh, taken
1: away. that That's the normal process of kids turning into adults. Um, it's part of individuation. It's mm-hmm. a natural developmental stage. and yeah. it's normal and it's bumpy and it's hard. but that's what kids need to do. So tell us about the kidnapping slash transport and how this all begins for a child, essentially.
2: Yes. So parents are often encouraged to utilize what's called a transport service. And these are private companies whose sole function is to collect kids from their homes and bring them to residential facilities. So these are really marketed to parents in two ways. One, it's going to be a less, it's less traumatic for you as a parent. You don't have to physically force your child to go to the facility. You don't have to be there for the goodbyes. You don't have to do the handoff, right? And then on the the other angle that is often pushed really heavily is your child won't have a chance to run away or refuse treatment. So these folks will typically come in teams of two or four. Generally, parents are encouraged to do this in the middle of the night while the child is asleep. A lot of times the parents will be home, but they're kept relatively separate from the transport process. So they're there watching, they're giving approval, but they're not stepping in to protect or intervene with their child. Um, The child is woken up. By the transporters, and informed in that moment that they have some amount of time to collect their belongings, and it's time to go. They're often presented with, you know, the easy way or the hard way. The hard way implying the use of some form of restraint, you know, handcuffs or or physically carrying the child to the car and taking them. And then from there, they're transported, sometimes thousands of miles away from home. Um, some of these facilities aren't even located in the states. So, you may have kids, you know, traveling out of the country. They're going on airplanes. They're going by car. Um and it's a very disorienting and and terrifying experience for kids.
3: I would like to just add to that also that the facilities tell the parents that it's better if the child is further away, that that a you know, a hard break from their community and from their network will be best for the kids. So get them far away which I think is yet another indication that the problems are intentional, right? Like the further you get a, a child away from their parent, the harder it is to see them, the harder it is to supervise it all. So I think, right. and there's literally no evidence that taking a child further away from their, in fact, there's a ton of evidence to the contrary that keeping a child really close to home if they do need out of home <sighs> treatment is effective. So I think just from the very start, they're building in structures to, you know, really tear the kid apart, you know, by telling the parent, send them across the country.
4: That's insanity. There's no easy way to be, right, plucked out of your home in the middle of the night by strangers and taken to a facility God knows where. I just can't even imagine how traumatic that is for a teenager.
3: I didn't get transported, but it does seem to be um, one of the, like, number one lingering thing that anyone who did lists as a an ongoing injury from it, just a, you know, a fear of sleeping and a fear of, yeah. You know,
4: is there is there yeah. a profit-driven objective to that? I mean, these transporters, is it in part of their profit-driven... Um,
3: a lot yeah. of times the facilities own the transporters. They'll have, okay. like, a, an LLC that they own that does the... I mean, WASP had a bunch of them that they yep. would transport with. Yeah. So yes, profit motive. motive, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and they're not cheap. More. No, they're it's not cheap. Yeah.
2: yeah, so parents will pay them directly. I don't think it's ever actually included in your programming fee. It's always kind of encouraged as a strongly suggested optional upcharge.
4: Mm-hmm. And when parents pay, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, but when parents pay Is there, you know, almost like sending your kid to a school and the kid's having a hard time and they want to come back, right? Or is there a way to get back some of your tuition or do you know, the entire structure is very profit driven, not the welfare of
2: the child driven? 100%. So I know in my case, you know, I was turning 18 about three months after I was being sent to the program. So I was very lucky. My parents actually planned on my leaving when I turned 18. I didn't know that at the time. The program didn't tell me that. And I know in their case, they had to pay six months of tuition up front, regardless of the fact that I was only going to be there for three months. You know, a lot of places will also have kind of the opposite. So they'll have a guarantee if your child graduates from the program and then has a behavioral issue in the future, you can readmit them for free. And so, you know, there's a lot of encouragement for the kids to go all the way through the program, right?
3: The other thing they do that I find super, super manipulative, in addition to everything else is um, they offer those high interest rate loans, they'll can <laughs> they'll take second mortgages on your house, they'll take 401k loans. Um, and again, these are skilled salespeople, right? Like they get you on the hook. And then they're like, the parents like, but this is going to cost $200,000 to save my child, how will I pay for it? We'll take a second mortgage on your house. Don't worry. And then the parent is in debt up to their eyeballs. They've spent any uh, college money that they might have had, any life savings that they might have had, which then further stresses the family system to take the family exactly. and That's take absolutely. their Absolutely.
1: And now they have a traumatized child. And, <laughs> and a second mortgage on their house.
4: Yeah. Wow. So, who, you know. who, they, who they now cannot afford to send to
3: college. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. happened to
2: me. That was my entire oh. college fund went to Tranquility Bay. Because a
3: slick salesperson has told you, well, you're not going to get to send your kid to college unless you do
2: this. (laughs) They're going to die. That's the pressure tactic is if you don't do this right now, right now, yeah, they're going to be dead. They're going to be in jail or prostitute. Yes, exactly. On the streets (laughs) or a prostitute, depending (laughs) on the gender. So disturbing.
1: And we're talking about people who are not trained in the psychology field or treating kids or anyone at all. So. I got kicked out of prep
3: school that like I got kicked out of boarding school for drinking beer, which is like, again, not even something that a school usually gets involved with because that happens at home. My parents used an educational consultant with no degree who diagnosed me with bipolar disorder, which wasn't oh even an available pediatric diagnosis at the time, nor would I have fallen under the criteria, even if it was literally convinced my parents that I was on the brink of death. I was not in a peer group that was like at high risk of death. And I mean, if you ask them to this day, and my parents are smart. My dad has a degree from Cambridge. He's not a dumb guy. If you ask my parents to this day, you were going to die. You were like, we didn't know what to do. You were on the brink of death. And that's how good these salespeople are. I mean, these are, you know, they convince smart, well-intended parents that like, she drank beer, she's going to die. Uh
1: And the irony (laughs) is that they're actually traumatizing children and creating emotional and psychological issues, creating a lifetime of repercussions from the way they treat them. So do you two want to tell us about what happened to you or would you like to start with sort of a typical
2: experience of someone who arrives at these?
3: Yeah, I don't know that there is a typical experience. Go ahead,
2: Chelsea. Um, So I was 17 when I was sent to Tranquility Bay which is a WASP program in Jamaica. That's the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. So they were at one point the largest troubled teen industry provider in the U.S. They are now currently defunct. Uh, So I, I had had a rough couple of years in my adolescence. I would say more so than Amanda, I was definitely exhibiting more troubled behaviors. I had a very tense relationship with my mother, And I guess with my life in general, I think growing up in the 90s was a very difficult time to be a girl. And there was a lot of pressure and expectation of like finding this balance between like slut and prude and how to navigate that in the world. And I was not navigating that terribly well. And so I had developed a bit of a reputation, which I wasn't very happy about. And so, you know, I was acting out quite a bit. Uh, About a week before I was sent away, I went to a party at my friend's house. It was just a basement hangout thing. I'd been there a million times, uh, drank too much. And my neighbor, who I considered at the time to be a very, very close friend of mine, we went to the same high school. He had showed up late to the party, totally sober, offered to let me crush at his house for the night, which was perfect because I could walk across the backyard and be home in the morning before my parents even realized So I went and I spent the night and at that time I was sexually assaulted. I'm
1: so sorry. Thank you.
2: I didn't really know how to react to it. I didn't even really know if what had happened to me was sexual assault. I was mostly unconscious for it. I didn't have, you know, physical injuries or feel what I thought at 17, you know, a rape was supposed to be. So I didn't, didn't even really know. And I remember I went home to my parents' house. My dad was there. I was super rude to him. I left, went back to my friend's house. That's who I told what had happened to me. You know, we collectively confronted him. For some reason, this seemed like the appropriate response to call him on a group call and ask him about it. And at first he denied, you know, that anything had happened between us. And then when he realized that I remembered enough, his story instantly switched to you've forgotten that you consented and you were super into it. And, you know, I just, I figured you didn't want anyone to know about it. And that's why I said it didn't happen. So that realization that not only had this happened, but like he was deceptive about it hit me pretty hard. And so I think it took me a day or two before I contacted my parents. So I, I was essentially a runaway at that point. Um, you know, I called my parents. I finally told them what happened. They took me to the hospital where a rape kit was done and an examination. It had been too long at that point, I think, to really collect any evidence, but it was still the process. And during that, they also did blood work and reported back to my parents that I had taken substances. So, you know, my parents thought, oh my God, this horrible thing has happened to my child and she's using drugs. What can we do? So I already had a therapist and, you know, they brought me to my therapist and I I really didn't want to talk about what had happened to me. I, I didn't know what to say about it. I wasn't sure about what it was. My parents were the ones who made me go to the hospital and report it in the first place. And I felt really conflicted about that because... I knew the police were going to interview my friends who were underage, that we had been drinking, that we had been using substances we shouldn't. And so the last thing I wanted to do was get everyone in trouble, you know, for this thing that I felt like I was mostly fine from. So why is everyone freaking out, right? So the therapist told my parents that I was not processing things the way that I should be. And at that point is when I remember she brought out this brochure and started talking to them about options. And at that point, I I was only really familiar with kind of what I considered traditional rehab, right? Kid gets sent off for like 90 days for drug and alcohol rehab. I had plenty of friends that had gone and come back and seemed fine. So that's kind of what I thought was going to happen. Still was upset. I think I I ran off to my then boyfriend's house and was like, you're not going to send me. I'm going to live here forever. And then like, I don't know, five days later, it was like, Hey, so about this turns out it's not that great living at my high school boyfriend's mom's (laughs) house. So maybe you Mm -hmm. can pick me up. So they picked me up and I went home. And at this point, you know, I still thought going to rehab, not happy about it, but it's 90 days. It is what it is. Like I'll be fine. And for whatever reason, I snuck into their room and I stole this brochure. And after everyone went to bed, I called the hotline and I was like, I'm a mom. (laughs) What is your program like? And they immediately were like, our programs last between 12 and 18 months. And I, I mean, they obviously caught on at that point that I was a kid and they were like, who is this? You know, who are we speaking to? You don't sound like a mom. And I hung up the phone and started panicking. I think that was the night before I was supposed to leave. So I contacted a really close friend who lived down the street and her and her mom came to my house and were going to pick me up and let me stay with them. So I didn't have to go to this facility. And that was intercepted by my dad. There was a big commotion of like, she came to the door and I ran to the door and we grasped hands and I was going to leave. And then he pulled me back in and the door gets shut. And then we both bang on it until it's clear that I'm not going anywhere. So At that point, I pretty much submit. I know I'm going in the morning. There was my escape plan. That was it. The next day, my dad and his pastor drove me to the airport. We flew from there to Jamaica and drove about three hours from the Montego Bay Airport to a super isolated facility on the South Coast in a place called Treasure Beach. It was a former hotel that had been converted into, I mean... It looked like a prison. It had fencing around it. There was barbed wire fencing on top of that. There were towers where apparently there were guards, though I don't know if they were actually manned. The conditions were, yeah, the conditions were quite bad. Um, As soon as we got there, we were separated. And so my dad had not seen the facility in, in person yet. And honestly, most parents didn't. Most parents used a transporter. And so they would have never even gone in the first place to see it before their child was dropped off.
3: That may be part of the transporters themselves as yeah. not letting the parents see the facilities. Oh,
2: for yeah. sure, for yeah, sure. They don't Interesting. Want yeah.
3: No way. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. The less truth the parents see, the better for them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So they took my dad on a tour, and that was led by an upper-level student to so kind of the approved places and the approved people in the program that he could talk to, who would say positive things. And I actually, you know, I have this on video like a home video that he took of him taking this tour. And I'm just like, it's bad. I'm like, why, how can you see this and be like, okay, cool. I'm going to go now. This looks great. Um, But yeah, so he went on a tour. I was separated. I brought a bunch of belongings. They have like a whole packing list for you. None of which you get to keep, by the way. It's all just so your parents, it's almost like you're going to camp. And so you pack, like you're going to camp and then you get there and they're like, okay, we're taking all of this because you're on lower levels you'll get this back. Maybe if you make it to the upper levels, here's a uniform. Please just sit here silently. As you change into this uniform, you're only allowed to wear flip-flops so that if you do decide to run away, it's harder. Hmm. And then my dad came back from his tour. He said goodbye and left. Um, I think my first indication that things were even worse than I I thought at first glance was when the girl who gave him the tour like quietly apologized to me for having done it. Wow. Yeah, that was, yeah. And then I remember it was, it was night at this time. And so my first stop was to get a cavity search performed for contraband. And so I was actually taken to the facility nurse's bedroom because that's where she was at that time. And I had to lay on her bed for the cavity search to be performed. And all I remember is that it reminded me so much of my grandmother's house and my grandmother's bedroom. Like she had a ton of clocks and it had that kind of like mothball smell. And like, Mm. it just felt really, I mean, you don't expect to get a cavity search done on a bed in general. And there's like Mm. people outside, like the door's not shut. There's like people on the veranda talking. It's, It's super just, we're going in there. We're checking everything.
1: Well, a complete lack of professional boundaries in addition to the fact that you're being cavity searched and you're dealing with the aftermath of a sexual assault.
4: Yeah, I was just gonna say, and you're already traumatized because you were
3: assaulted when you were incapacitated. I also think that's another sexual assault, by the way. It is. <laughs> I think <laughs> that's totally valid on grandma's yeah. bed and doing a cavity search. One hundred percent. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I found out later she wasn't even a nurse. She's actually an optometrist assistant. That's her her licensure. Wow. But just that, was our, that was our up. only medical professional. If you had health concerns in the facility, you went to the nurse who, you know, was the optometrist. Was not a nurse at all. Yes, exactly. The nurse
1: who was not a nurse.
2: Yes, you <laughs> we went to the person that said they were a nurse. A nurse. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah we have
1: there? to laugh because it's upside down world. It's oh, it is. Yeah. ludicrous, but it's so much worse than ludicrous.
2: Yeah. My humor is very dark at this point. I get it. Life. So if I I'm think that's part of my, through Chelsea, like my most traumatic daughter. moments, <laughs> just, just roll with it. Got it. <laughs> um, so from there, they took me to what they called the family rooms. So we were all divided up into families. And so you had a room mother and that was who you are supposed to refer to them as mom or room mother. And there were probably, I think, 20 or 30 girls in my family, which was named the Integrity Family. And so the first night that I was there, they didn't actually have any open beds for me to sleep on. So I just slept on this mattress on the floor under a light, because I think I was under observation. I don't know that I realized it at the time, but you know I was basically there to be watched. And I remember at one point, I just like got up to use the bathroom. I thought I'll, I have to use the bathroom and I'll go. And like staff all of a sudden like came running in and were yelling at me. And, you know, there's a process you have to wait. You know, you can't just use the bathroom. So you had to, you'd have to lay in bed and wait for someone to come in to do checks, to shine a light on you so that you could raise your hand, so that they could give you permission to speak, so that you could ask to go to the bathroom, so that you could then tell them if it was a number one or a number two, and they could give you the appropriate toilet paper squares. And then you could go while a staff stood outside of the door to make sure you were doing what you said you were doing. And then after that, you could go back to bed.
4: This is Our, so many different
1: layers uh, of abuse. It's alarming. Wow. Yeah. Our jaws are just falling open at this story. The level of
2: control is Oh, terrifying. complete control. Complete control. Yeah. So the next morning I was assigned what they called a staff buddy. And so this was a, another student who was level three or above, and they had this really thick binder of rules. You know, these are the rules of the facility that you have to follow. And they kind of explain to you how it works. So you're you're trying to gain points to move up these levels of privilege, right? But you also lose points anytime you break a rule. And when I say there's a rule for everything, there is a rule for everything. So everything requires permission to sit, to stand, to speak, to cross through a doorway, to look at people, yeah, anything. You'd have to raise your hand, wait for permission, obtain permission, and do the thing.
1: The idea that this is somehow therapeutic. I know. Yes. So backwards.
2: Yes. And then kind of the way the rules appeared on paper looked maybe semi-legitimate, right? So there were like self-harm things and suicide risk and sexual behaviors that might involve some sort of Higher level of punishment. But in reality, those rules were applied very liberally. So, biting your nails, for instance, was a suicide attempt. Looking out the window was an attempt at runaway. Looking at a member of the opposite sex without immediately turning around and facing the wall, because we had both a boy's and a girl's side, was considered romantic encouragement. And the same thing as if I had gone up to that boy and just had public intercourse. Wow. So, you know, those terms were used in ways that were different from what they were intended to be used for. So you learn the rules and then you, you begin the routine, right? And so each day at Tranquility Bay was exactly the same. You woke up at 6am, you had 20 minutes of chores. You went outside for a head check where you'd all stand in these lines and you would recite a pledge and they would count and make sure that everyone was there. From there, you would go and take a cold shower because we didn't have hot water at our facility. And so you would shower in these outside, I don't know how to explain them other than like troughs essentially, Mm -hmm. and you had two minutes for your shower and they would time it very strictly. So you'd go in, take your two minute shower, go out, go from there to the dining hall where you would have breakfast. And during that time, you were forced to listen to these motivational tapes. I mean, just like any sort of motivational speaker you can think of, they would play at us. And we would have to be taking notes the whole time about what we were listening to and learning about. So, you know, like Zig Ziglar was (laughs) something I listened to way too much at 17. (laughs) From there, you would go to what they called group therapy. And this relates to what Amanda spoke to earlier, something called attack therapy. So this is unlike any sort of group therapy that you may have encountered in a traditional mental health setting. Your first day, that you go to group therapy is really about breaking you down. So you understand that you have no way out of this program. Wow. I know kind of leading up to my first group therapy session, I still had this thought that like, I don't know, my dad's going to come and get me. Like, there's no way, like this place is so bad. I'm going to get a chance to talk to him or tell him or tell somebody, and I'm going to be going home. Right. So following the rules, but in my head, I'm like, I'm getting out of here, you know? And so you go to group therapy and you have to stand in the middle of a circle of your peers. And one by one, they stand and they they get into your face and they give you feedback. And the feedback is based on what they can pick up about you. So mine was primarily, you know, you think you're going home. You think you're entitled. You don't think you need to be here. You know, your dad obviously knows what this place is. Like, he's going to leave you here. No one's coming to save you. And this continues essentially until you cry or show the right amount of emotion. And then the person leading the session will generally stop it and move on to the next person.
1: It sounds like torture. Yeah. It's emotional torture, like you said, meant to break you down. What you're describing, the cold showers, the troughs, the not being able to look out the window, it sounds like a prisoner of war. Yes. hmm it's
3: absolutely. I, I would argue that some prisoner there might be conventions that prevent some of this treatment with Great point. yeah, right. I think some of this stuff is is just not okay. <laughs>
1: it's a violation of civil rights and human rights yeah. Yeah. no matter what age you are, and it's so much worse that they're doing this to minors
2: mm-hmm. My facility was pretty brutal in terms of the use of restraint and seclusion. Uh, I was very lucky. I didn't actually go to observation placement or experience physical restraint myself. So I think I just complied pretty quickly, like saw it for what it was and was like, nope, not going to fight back. We will just do this. But there were two kind of bigger punishments that you could receive at Tranquility Bay. The first was worksheets, which I did spend great deal of time in. And that was, it seemed innocuous at first. So it was a 10,000 word essay that you had to write by hand within three hours. And so you would go to this small room and there would be probably 20 kids stuffed in this you know, very small space and you didn't have desks. So you would sit in a lawn chair with a stack of textbooks on your lap and you would write on this lined paper from edge to edge until you reached the amount of words. And if you didn't reach that amount of words in that amount of time, They would throw it in the trash, and you would start over. And so you could be there for a day. You could be there for a couple of days. You could be there for weeks. It's up to you. It's your choice. Is this ostensibly educational? This. Or punishment? This was a punishment. This was not. They didn't actually even really read your essays. It was literally just you had to write down that number of words in that amount of time. So that's all they would do is count them and then throw it away.
4: So it didn't need to make any sense or be grammatically correct or anything? No, no. The first
2: few times I went, I thought that was the case and that you'd have Mm -hmm. to like maintain a topic. And then I realized that that didn't matter. And that made it slightly easier because I could just gibberish my way through it. Wow. So that was one layer of punishment, and then the next layer of punishment would have been what was called observation placement. And this was a room in the basement of the program. It was just a concrete floor, and kids would be taken there if they were a threat to themselves or others. But as we discussed earlier, that could include all kinds of behaviors that were not threatening. And that required that children laid on the ground, on their stomachs, with their chin resting on the concrete their arms out to their sides like this. And they had to maintain that position all day. They were given a small break, I think every hour where they had to do some jumping jacks because at one point I think the Jamaican authorities came and visited and said that, you know, you can't just make them lay here forever. So they added that in, but kids would spend, I think the record was 18 months in that position in that room at my Good facility.
3: God. I mean that that would cause lifelong physical problems. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, like yes. your spine would be permanently right. unable to per function and,
4: and you could yeah. have nerve damage and sure all sorts of other my god. Mm-hmm. Your parents are paying
2: for this. Parents are paying for this. I mean it's in the contract. It's framed slightly different. Like I said, like yeah. it's only when your child is truly a threat to themselves or others, but in practice, kids were there all the time. It was broadly applied. Very broadly applied. <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, I think within the first week after I got to the program, there was actually a boy who ran away from the boy's side, which was a pretty impressive feat to even get out of the complex, but we were like on the beach on a cliffside, So he climbed down to the beach and he kind of started running. And then I think that he ran out of land And so they were able to capture him and bring him back. And I hear that sound to this day. He was consistently being restrained and hurt in that room for several days.
1: Good God. That points out something that you two also talk about, which is the trauma of witnessing what they're doing to other people as well. Mm -hmm. I
3: honestly think that some of the experiences that other people went through, haunt me almost more than, especially I think when you're like Chelsea and I, and like, well, I'm pretty sensitive and and a stronger personality where you're like the type of person who would help other people and yeah. not let groups attack a vulnerable person, which is like intrinsic in who I am. And right. then you just have to like sit there and watch other people destroy someone weaker. I think that's probably out of everything I went through. That's probably the one thing we're just like just sitting there and just watching it go down and not being able to do anything. Because
4: if you, if you helped in any way, any reasonable, heartfelt, moral way, you would be punished
2: absolutely and And in fact you were required to police you were required to tell on each other and if you didn't tell on someone or if you didn't make sure that somebody who broke a rule received the appropriate consequences you would get that consequence yourself
3: wow the whole group could get the consequences Mm -hmm. yeah which is even worse when the whole group if like you do something small and then we would call it sitting where you just have to sit in a room and it could be for days and days and days and so like if you did something small And the whole group had to sit you're like uh, you know then everybody hates you (laughs) (laughs) You
1: and this is how abusive systems and abusive relationships work when they're taken to the extreme is that it has control over every possible choice that you could make and this is such an extreme version of emotional torture i think this is really hard to hear i think i just want to say to my audience as hard as it is we have to know this because it is happening right now to kids and there just is not enough awareness out there so i so appreciate you sharing this with us and i'm going to let you keep going chelsea thank you yeah. yeah
2: so that was kind of the typical day you know you would repeat dinner you would do emotional they would call them emotional growth videos which were usually like if you remember the old after school specials that used to air on tv it was like cassette tapes of that you know, we had like an assortment of like probably 10. So you would watch them over and over again. And then there would be some form of an elective. So perhaps you would go have field time, which was literally just walking in a circle around a barren field. That was our gym class or music, which was where you could sing, but we weren't allowed to listen to music as a privilege thing. So you just had to acapella it based on what you remembered we didn't have any sheet music or like anything so so you were allowed to sing yes you were allowed to sing at this one specific half hour time and so that was kind of the typical day-to-day program and then every month or two they would have a seminar and so these seminars were based on Lifespring so they actually hired former Lifespring facilitators to develop the seminars for WASP And so they just pretty much copy-pasted what Lifespring was doing. Explain what Lifespring is. Mm -hmm. So Lifespring is a large group awareness training. It's both experiential and highly confrontational. And it uses a lot of techniques that have gotten it a reputation for brainwashing and as a cult over the years. Kind of similar to like Landmark Forum, Mm -hmm. but more confrontational and more extreme. Okay. So the seminars in the program's They had a set for children, and then they also had a set for your parents and siblings. And I think this was WASP's kind of genius move in terms of turning parents into just fervent supporters of the program. So the parents would go through, you know, a series of seminars on the outside and love it, fall in love with the whole concept of this experiential learning. And then we would also go through these seminars in the programs. They would be generally three days long, the ones that the kids went to often between 12 and 14 hours a day. You would have homework before and after. So you were generally pretty sleep deprived. You would do these very confrontational exercises in the seminars that were designed to teach you their personal philosophy, which is that there is no right or wrong. There's only working or non-working. So looking at the world through a right or wrong framework is actually really damaging. It allows us to be victims And being a victim is really bad and disempowering. But if you look at the world through working and non-working choices, then you can kind of separate yourself from this morality of what happened to you and look at an event that way. So in terms of my sexual assault in particular, what that looked like was I made a non-working decision to drink. I made a non-working choice to go home with my friend. And that led to this sexual assault. And so instead of focusing on being a victim of the sexual assault, I should focus on changing these non-working behaviors so that that doesn't happen to me again.
1: So they're victim blaming Uh and like a cult, they Uh are turning everything that happens in your life onto you. It's your fault. And uh, the irony that you're called the integrity family and they're telling you there's no such thing as morality.
2: Yes. Wow. Wow. I mean, the phrase that they used is based on your results, you have exactly what you intended. Like you're getting. Yep. Yeah. And that was used no matter what, you know? And so in these seminars, what I didn't know at the time, but I know now is they actually had all of your therapy notes. So these seminar facilitators who were contracted people brought in former Lifespring folks were given access to all of your therapeutic history. I assume my parents provided information from the therapist I was seeing before I went to the program, but also, you know, any conversations that I had in the program in group or with an individual counselor. So they would bring up things. They would make you talk about really traumatic events. They would have kids who had been molested stand in front of a group of 150 other kids and explain what happened and then have to explain the non-working choices that they made as a (laughs) five-year-old to justify What happened to them, and this was supposed to be this freeing and liberating experience. In reality, it was traumatic and, of course, overwhelming. Um, And again, this is the same techniques that Scientology and Mm
1: Nexium and all of these cults use because it's a way to control you.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: But it's so backwards and so extremely destructive to human beings.
2: Yes. Yeah, we would do. These very specific exercises, and I think anyone who went to a WASP program tends to bring up these certain ones, but one was the live-die game, and that was where you walked around the room, and you stood, and you had to look people in the eyes, and then look at each other for 10 seconds, and then based on those 10 seconds of eye contact, tell the other person live or die, and you only had so many live votes, so you couldn't tell everyone to live. And at the end, they would make the people who had the most live votes and the people who had the most die votes go up to the front of the room, and we would all try to understand why it was this way in reality, I think it was mostly based on like, do you have a face that is visually pleasing to me or not? Wow, <laughs> or just a complete random, right? but it it's was... a
1: way to pit you against each other for one mm-hmm. thing,
2: yeah.
3: It's so not even a disguised one. popularity contest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah.
2: yeah. In later seminars, there was a lot of work done on getting in touch with what they called your magical child, which was kind of this like perfect, pure part of you before you went bad, right? Before you became troubled that we had to write letters to, we had to make a grave for it and kill it. We had to mourn it. And then we had to like bring it back you know, there was all the symbology, do the inner child work. You would talk a lot about your image, which in a WASP program was a very powerful phrase, right? So we all had some sort of image that we lived in, whether that was acting like a victim or something to do with your style or music or really anything. And at the end of the seminar, they would make you do something to kind of push you outside of your image. And they called it a stretch, exercise. And so for mine, I had to do the lady in red stretch, which ironically LifeSpring just called it the slut stretch, but ours at least called it lady in red. And so I had to wear this ridiculous red, like off the shoulder, low cut, you know, dress and dance in front of everyone to the lady in red song, presumably to make me value my beauty and femininity was the guys
1: but my guess is that none of the totally. men got slut
2: shamed am i right it was pretty brutal all around to be entirely oh honest. was it they did not have to dance i don't think that they made them do that but they were you know if you showed any sort of femininity as a man or if you happen to be gay or you know says
4: just going say they
1: threw in a dash
4: of homophobia well. oh of course sure. oh yeah. Yeah, yeah
2: yeah my
1: point is that good god you know there isn't really a male equivalent to slut but I'm sort of digressing.
2: No, you're right. You're right. (laughs) I think probably the thing that I struggled with the most was there were a lot of kids who were sent there by their abuser. And it was known to the facilitators. It was known to the program. And that would be stuff that they would be bringing up is dad did this to me. Dad did that to me. And it's how do we help you reconnect with dad? So you still love dad, even though. Wow, this
1: is really a key point because what we haven't, really said is that the goal and the point of this entire situation is to break you down, to break your spirit so that they can give you back to your family and you're not going to put up a fight.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they would generally, there's paperwork for my programs, well not paperwork, but like depositions, documentation where they refer to the parents as the clients and us as the product. And I think that's, Exactly what it was. You know, it was, did you screw up along the way of raising your child and now your child doesn't like you? Well, send them here and we will deprogram them until they are just so grateful to be home with you and they absolutely love you.
4: Wow. No teenager likes their parents. And if they say they do, they're lying. <laughs>
3: it's exactly <laughs> part of being exactly. a teenager is you yes. have to start severing those family bonds and yeah. creating so you, your so own you identity. Create,
4: yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your own identity. Wow. That's right. The level of emotional and physical abuse is just shocking. It's shocking. It like, is shocking. absolutely stunning. How are and we and there, your parents and... had to pay for this. Oh, Uh
2: they paid handsomely for this. Yeah, they paid, I think like close to $40,000 for me to be there for just shy of three months. Wow. In a place where, I mean, our kitchen didn't have adequate facilities. You know, we didn't have filtered water, not only just hot water, we didn't have water filtration. We slept on these very thin little mattresses on these folding wood panels that you pulled down from the wall. The plumbing backed up in our room at least three times a week, there would just be raw sewage in the bedroom flowing out of the bathroom. All of us were incredibly sick. And I remember going going to the nurse and telling her, you know, I'm, I'm seeing blood when I go to the bathroom. This isn't normal for me. I think I'm really sick. And she's like, oh, everyone has that. It's just adjusting to the water. You'll be fine.
3: Chronic diarrhea seems to be like one of the things that and it's not a small thing that can
1: kill you. It's dangerous. Yeah, yeah it's dangerous.
4: And, and it can be caused by physical, chemical, and emotional stresses as well. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. And let's just remind everybody that that woman was only qualified to help you pick out eyeglass frames, essentially.
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly.
1: So what we haven't mentioned is that these places generally restrict and censor any kind of communication you have back with your parents and anyone in the real world. So was that the case for you, Chelsea?
2: Yep. I never actually reached a level to where I was allowed to have a phone call with my parents the entire time that I was there. So I could only communicate via letter, which is where you typically start out in these facilities is you're allowed to write letters back and forth. The letters are obviously read in both directions. And your parents are told ahead of time to watch out for what they call manipulation. So it's set up before you even go. Your parents told, you know, kids like this, these troubled kids, they lie. They'll make up anything to get you to take them out of this facility. Here's the kind of things that you can expect to hear from your kids. And that's when they prime the parents with all of the actual legitimate abuse. You might hear the food is terrible. You're going to hear they're really sick. You're going to hear we're super mean to them, that we're brainwashing them, that it's this or it's that, you know, and just know this is all a normal part of the process. You know, we see this all the time. And what you need to do is just no matter what your child says, recommit that you're going to have them graduate this program. And they call that a commitment letter. So I definitely had a commitment letter from my parents. I did try to to tell them some of the things that were going on. I think that's how I got in worksheets at least once of, one of the times.
1: And so they tell the parents that you can trust us, but the parents can't trust them at all because they're torturing their children.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's set up so that that child doesn't have a chance of ever reporting what's actually happening to them, um, yeah. to anyone meaningful. And by the time they're out, you've been immersed in it so long. I mean... I published my journals online like back in 2012 because I found them in a move and you can see real Chelsea when she first gets to the program like her thoughts and I have my little like, this is a prison for the young and I'm, <laughs> you know, here. Mm-hmm. I have real thoughts and, and feelings and then it switches into this like, complete robotic language pulled directly from the seminars. You know, I made a non-working choice today. It was this and this. I'm really in my issues here. So-and-so was running their image and I had to call them out in group. And I'm really proud of myself for that. And like, you know, just- So
3: the, the brainwashing was working.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
3: I think that is actually, and again, I, it took sort of law school and understanding Stockholm syndrome and, and stuff like that. But I think it, you have to buy in at some point for your own sanity. You have to say like, I'm here, I got to go with it. And it happens quick. Like you were there
1: for three months where you're just like, okay, I got to play the game now. And I think that's really important for people to hear who've been subjected to any kind of abuse, that that is a coping mechanism, is you're stuck there or... This is your family doing it to you potentially, you know, these are people who are really important to you who you need. So you find a way to make it work in your own head, because you don't really have other options. You I certainly mean, it, didn't. Chelsea.
4: It sounds sounds like it's a survival mechanism.
2: I mean, how yeah. are
4: you to survive? Other than play this insane game?
2: Yes. And wow. it's the only way to get approval. So you know, When you first start giving feedback in group, when you first start telling on your friends or working the program, you get so much positive reinforcement. You know, you're finally moving up. You might even move up a whole level and gain a new privilege. And so you're rewarded and you're told this is what good behavior is. This is how you're a good friend. Right. Because that's what we were taught. Good friends are honest with each other. And so when you're giving someone feedback in these groups, you're helping them. And if you really care about these people, you'll do it no matter how it makes you feel or how it makes them feel. And that's such a huge element of it.
3: And it's a disastrous life skill to be teaching teenagers, by the way, because point. And I think one of the things that we all have to unlearn is you just say things so bluntly. You can't confront people on everything. And yet they're training teenagers to like essentially be dysregulated, right? Like they're training teenagers to get upset over small things, to confront at the slightest provocation, to feel hurt, upset, and angry over things that in ordinary life, you don't. And it's hard to when you're wiring those neural pathways in such young kids, it becomes really hard to like readjust real life skills where you don't treat people like that. And you don't confront somebody angrily and expect to hug them 30 minutes later and have everything be okay. You know what I mean? Like it's just like the worst life skills you can be teaching teenagers and yet they do it. Yes, yeah, so emotionally
2: eviscerating my friends is a skill I've mastered. It's a skill
3: I together. need in the world. Yeah, yeah like making people feel as small as possible. Respect. Yeah, you have to <laughs> unlearn
2: all of that. Yeah, oof, it's a lot, you know. And then our program as well. We did have a psychiatrist who consulted with the international programs at the time. So WASP had several programs abroad. They had programs in Jamaica, Mexico, Samoa, the Czech Republic, Costa Rica. Are these places
1: where they were able to more easily avoid regulation?
2: Yes. I think the international programs cater to really two types of kids, kids like me who are on the cusp of turning 18, where most of the states won't take you. So that's what my parents ran into with me with the traditional facilities, right, is they were all like, she's about to turn 18. We'll take her, but we can't stop her if she wants to leave. And so. So
1: it's not our best investment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So our therapist was like, you know, where she can't leave is this place in Jamaica. So a lot of the older kids were sent abroad. And then it was also used as a punishment or like a threat for the American stateside schools. So they had a lot of schools in the states. And if you were to not cooperate there, they would send you to the international programs. I see. Okay. I know. You know, at mine, on the boys' side, parents signed over permission for pepper spray to be used, for electric disablers to be used. And I know the pepper spray was used. Um, What's an electric disabler? You mean like essentially a, taser? a taser? Yeah, a taser. taser. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's interviews with the staff members of my facility talking about how at one point they were pepper spraying one student sometimes three times a day because he didn't have any pain. He couldn't feel pain. Um, he'd grown immune to it and it was the only way they could control him. And so they really had, I mean, they had kind of endless leeway. And then for my school, what was held over our head was a program called high impact. And that was shut down by the Mexican authorities that was operating in the Sonoran desert. And that was literally just a compound fenced in with cages essentially dog kennels all along the sides. And then a small tarped off area where the kids lived when they weren't in trouble. And it was a shorter term experiential thing that they would use, you know, to gain compliance if you really wouldn't work the programs. And I think the kids were expected to walk. I want to say it was like 10,000 laps around this field, but the conditions were very bad in the middle of the desert. They had apparently some of the worst food and, you know, very restricted water a lot of drill sergeant type boot camp environment. And if the kids acted up there, they were taken to the dog cage and they were hog tied and left in the sun for an extended period of time. And Did that was kids die? No kids. No well, kids died at high impact. There's rumors of a death, but there's no, as no, far as I know. Surprising.
3: No surprising. Hog- yeah. yeah. By the grace of God, no one died. Because yeah, it sounds, uh, that could
4: be a lot yeah, of that, that's <laughs> a miracle that no yeah. one died.
1: Yes. Wow. Yes. Well, maybe it's not the case.
2: Yeah. High guess, impact. You know, it it yeah. was kind of a pop up. So even Wasp at the time that they were operating it, like to distance themselves from its existence. It was a school they worked with. You know, they didn't necessarily own it. Even though you can dig deep enough and be like, they did in fact own and operate and market this program. I think they knew from the beginning. This is this yeah. goes beyond even like the wilderness or boot camp model that yeah. most people are familiar with. It's just unfathomable.
1: So we have about 30 minutes left. Chelsea, I'd love you to tell me anything else you want to to wrap up your story. And I'd like to hear about Amanda's experience. And then if we have time, maybe you guys could give us a little bit of the origin of these types of facilities and how this came yeah. to be.
2: Um, I mean, I think that that pretty well sums up my experience. You know, as I got closer to 18, we had a choice, essentially. So you could stay and graduate or you would be offered what they called an exit plan. And so they told us that all your parents would guarantee is a flight to Miami and $25 <laughs> if you chose to leave. And so I had already made up my mind. like I was going to take the $25 and go to Miami and call my friends in Michigan and be like, somebody like help yeah. me get from Miami to there. Or I guess I live in Miami now with this $25. Um, but before that happened, my dad actually came and pulled me out, which I was really grateful for, I think. Probably the only reason that happened is because my parents didn't participate in the parent seminars. They kind of saw through that from the very beginning, but I guess didn't mind if I went through them.
1: So how did that lead to your dad coming to get you?
2: I think had he gone to the parent seminars, he would have been convinced to keep going yeah, I see. it already okay. made his decision at the time that I was enrolled that he was pulling me out when I turned 18. I just didn't okay. know that. And the program went very hard on me to stay. And I think if I had said to my dad, you know, I want to stay until I graduate, he probably would have been like, uh, OK, I guess
1: I'd <laughs> okay. like to
2: say you can. Um, so if their
1: brainwashing had been more effective, you might not have left at 18.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thankfully, my parents didn't participate in that part. So I was OK.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's a jaw dropping story. And I know that, you know, unfortunately, it's not unique, but I'm so sorry that you experienced that right from the very beginning with this sexual assault that you went through. I mean, I can only imagine that you have had years of work that you've been doing on overcoming all of this traumatic experiences.
2: Definitely. Yes. I have been diagnosed with CBTSD. And so that's been difficult to work
1: through. So. Yeah, I'm sure. And I so appreciate that you're doing this work and getting out there to help protect other kids Thank from going you. through what you did. It's mm-hmm. really admirable. Thank you for listening, and come back next week to hear Amanda Simmons tell us about her experience as a survivor of the now-closed John Dewey Academy in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and the work she and Chelsea are doing to help expose and shut down these types of facilities. Chelsea and Amanda are writing a blog post with more information that we plan to send out next week to all my Second Wound blog subscribers, and which I'll also share on social media. So head over to secondwound.com to subscribe. It's really easy to do, and you will receive the post in your email when it comes out. I also recommend listening to the podcast Trapped in Treatment, which is produced by Paris Hilton. It will help you learn so much more about the history and current state of this industry, including Paris' own story. And finally, your call to action for this week is twofold. First, sign Paris Hilton's petition on change.org, which you can find by Googling or looking in our show notes. And second, Amanda and Chelsea encourage you to explore the hashtag breaking code silence on social media to understand more of the survivor perspective. And next episode, will give you another call to action. So I really hope you come back. Check out the Truth and Consequences website to find all our episodes, photos, and show notes. That's truth, the letter N, consequences.com. And please support the podcast with a five-star rating and review, and even easier, tell your friends about it. You can follow Truth and Consequences and The Second Wound on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on episodes and past guests. Thank you for listening, and always remember, your truth matters. Original music for the Truth and Consequences podcast, including our beautiful theme song, is composed and performed by Maddie Morris and produced by Pete Ord of Haystack Records. Thank you, Adam, for finding the fireplace tool you knew I wanted because you listen and pay attention and you manage to surprise me with the perfect gift every time, which if we're being honest is sometimes because I forgot that I asked you for it.
0: comfort take your claim to a life without shame there are people who understand here they're reaching out their hands and there is joy that will bloom on the other side community. of survival you have a right to the way you feel you have a right to a space where you can heal because there is joy that will bloom on the other side